0: Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger.
1: And I'm Jeff Schutze.
0: And Jeff, what is going on
1: in the news? So in the news, first off, there's some sad news. Legendary animator Will Vinton has died.
0: That is very sad.
1: Yeah. From Pace Magazine, I got that Will Vinton... Oscar-winning animator and key figure in stop-motion animation history, has passed away at the age of 70. The Oregonian animator was a pioneer in the field of clay animation in particular and passed away after battling multiple myeloma for more than 10 years.
0: Oh, that is that is very sad.
1: Yeah. I remember as a kid, I watched his animation because I was reading that he did the Noid from yes. Dominoes. Yes, he did. And the California Raisins, mm-hmm. which... You know, they're saying, I heard it through the grapevine and all that stuff. But, you know, one of the cool later projects of his, his studio became Leica. Yes, it did. Yes. And I know we both love Coraline and Paranorman and Kubo and the Two Strings. So I heard he wasn't involved that much in those productions, but. It is interesting that his studio became like us. It
0: is very much so. And he worked on a number of great things. He also worked on Captain EO for (laughs) Walt Disney World, which is no longer playing, but that was a fantastic short. And he also worked on Return to Oz, which gave many child a nightmare, but which I absolutely adore.
1: I love that movie. That
0: movie is great and creepy and weird. Mm -hmm. All of you should go and see it. It's just the 80s it's just so amazing
1: totally that, i love the character designs in that it's so cool
0: absolutely the gnome king Mm-hmm. very cool and actually i got this from the hollywood reporter there's going to be a celebration of his life on october 21st at the no vacancy lounge in portland at 3 p.m so if any of you out there want to go and pay your respects please do because like jeff said he was a pioneer in the field
1: yeah definitely For our next news item, Lilo and Stitch live-action CG hybrid remake in the works at Disney.
0: Of course it is.
1: Yes. I had to bring this up in the news because (laughs) I love Lilo and Stitch. It's one of my favorite 2D animated films. I just think it's so... I was blown away by it when I first saw it. And I have watched that movie probably like 10, 20 times maybe. I don't know. But... Yeah, so from the Hollywood Reporter, Lilo and Stitch, the 2002 animated movie from Walt Disney Feature Animation, is getting the live-action treatment. The studio has hired up-and-comer Mike Van Weiss to pen the script for the remake, which will be produced by Dan Lin and Jonathan Eric of Rideback, formerly known as Lin Pictures. The two are already known in the Disney halls as they are working on the high-profile live-action remake of Aladdin. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I'm conflicted because... I love the 2D animated movie, but I don't know how this live-action hybrid one is going to come out. But I will be there buying a ticket. I have to see how this turns out. What do you think?
0: The way I feel about this is, hey, it's their movies. They can do whatever they want. Some of the live-action films that they've made, I really liked. Mm-hmm. I really liked the live-action Cinderella. Some of the live-action films they've made... I have not liked at all. And they're just at the point right now where they're just remaking everything because why not? You know, they can do it. They can make the money. So I feel, though, with these types of movies, it's best to give them a chance rather than just... I mean, it's very easy to just be an internet person and write everything off as terrible before it comes out, only to come back and say, JK, look, it's actually great. So... Hopefully it'll be good. My hope is that all these movies will be good. We won't know until we see them.
1: Yep, yep. I can't wait to see what Stitch looks like.
0: I wonder what Chris Sanders thinks. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious because this was his idea. This was his baby. Did he get any input at all? Or did they just say, hey, guess what? We're making a thing.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Okay, so next up is Disney is developing a digital docuseries, Ink and Paint. From Jennifer Wolfe at Animation World Network, Disney's alternative division to produce eight-episode documentary miniseries based on animation historian Mindy Johnson's book Ink and Paint, The Women of Walt Disney's Animation. That should be pretty cool. That
0: will be really cool. And I want to give a plug to our friend Cassie's podcast, Ink and Paint Girls, because she interviewed Mindy Johnson. So if you guys want to learn more about the the behind-the-scenes of the making of the book, check that episode out. I'm very excited that they're doing this on their streaming service because I was under the impression it was just going to be all of their previously created television shows Mm -hmm. and films. I didn't know that they were going to be making anything new. Right. So that's exciting.
1: Yeah, that's what excites me the most about this news because, like you said, I knew they were going to put a bunch of their Marvel stuff, their Disney stuff. That has already been made, but I want to see what's going to entice me to actually get this streaming service. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of those movies I already have on DVD or Blu-ray or streaming, I've seen them enough. This new stuff that they're developing is what's going to get me to subscribe. Yeah. yeah. It's a
0: lot like... DC just released their streaming service, Mm -hmm. and they're doing the same thing, which is they have new shows like Titans and Harley Quinn, but you can also watch Batman the Animated Series Mm -hmm. and the OG version of Teen Titans. So it's new and old, and I think that's what brings people in. It brings in the people that already like it, and it brings in people who are going to say, hey, I want to check out this new thing. Let's see what it's like.
1: Yeah, it's cool. I can't wait to see what else they come up with all this original stuff that's going to be great and i just wanted to plug the book which is beautiful and amazing ink and paint girls if you don't have that book pick it up because it's great
0: absolutely and now we bring you to animation events happening in the southern california area so first up gallery nucleus is presenting a tribute exhibition for the 20th anniversary of mulan it's going to be held saturday october 20th at 7pm. There will be select artists in attendance, complimentary refreshments, and no RSVP is required. Jeff, my question for you. How old do you feel knowing that Mulan is celebrating its 20th anniversary? Because I feel quite old.
1: So old. I feel like I'm going to blow away in the wind as dust because I cannot believe it's been that long.
0: I remember seeing this movie in the theater with my little cousins, and my little cousins are now married and have kids, so it's... yikes. But it's also very exciting.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that movie. The design on it's so good, and it's just such a beautiful movie. I think I'm going to attend this thing because I want to see who's going to show up.
0: I'm very curious who's going to show up too, Mm because it just said select artists, and... Who might those be? I don't know. I don't Tony Bancroft. Who knows? He's here in town. We'll find out.
1: I think Chris Sanders worked on that movie. That he, did. Awesome he did. He storyboard- that awesome.
0: He I believe he storyboarded that sequence they showed in the trailer of her chopping off her hair.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. And in Lilo and Stitch, to bring it back, yeah. there's a poster of Mulan in, mm-hmm. you know.
0: And they're also making a live action Mulan movie. So just Ugh. everything is converging. All media is just converging <laughs> onto one point. Alright, and then on a Tuesday, October 23rd, Women in Animation presents a conversation with Nancy Cantor and Chris Nee, and that's going to be held at Walt Disney Animation Studios. Nancy Cantor is the executive vice president of content and creative strategy for Disney Channels worldwide, and she's also the general manager. For Disney Junior Worldwide, and Chris Snee is the creator of Doc McStuffins, which holds the record of being one of the most adorable shows on television. (laughs) So if you want to hear all that they have to say, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. Make sure to check that out. And as always, with all of the events, everything will be listed on our website. So you can go and click on that and find out more information. And then on Thursday, October 25th, Noman School presents Google Spotlight Stories, Age of Sail. And this is a VR short directed by Academy Award winning John Cars, who you guys might remember as the director of Paperman. And also in attendance will be producer Jenny Rim and technical art lead Cassidy Curtis. So what they'll do is they will talk about the short. There's going to be a cool Q&A. It's going to be at 730 So make sure to check that out because the Google Spotlight stories are very interesting. I got to go to the one featuring Jorge Gutierrez's Son of Jaguar, and that was really neat. So make sure to check that out. And then finally, on Saturday, October 27th at 2 p.m., Gallery Nucleus will be hosting Star Wars Women of the Galaxy panel and book signing. So there's a new book coming out about the different women within the Star Wars universe, and so writer Amy Radcliffe and artist Sarah Kippen and Annie Stoll will be in attendance. And you can go to the site to purchase your tickets. And that is what's happening in the news. So now, Jeff, what have you been watching?
1: Okay, first up, I saw Venom. Ooh, okay. Yeah. With Tom Hardy. Mm-hmm.
0: I've heard some things. Yes. How is it?
1: Surprisingly, I liked it.
0: Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Okay. I had read some criticism beforehand, so I was prepared that it was going to be a bad movie. And it's not a good movie. Let me just say that. <laughs>
0: Your hot take. <laughs> yes.
1: It's not a good movie, but I did enjoy it. There's, they take some liberties with the character. I love the character from the comics in the 90s. He was a villain in the Spider Man comics, and his origin and all that is different from the comics but I thought they did a okay job getting him to earth and as this anti-hero that's running, you know, around San Francisco. But I don't know what to say about <laughs> it. <laughs> Tom Hardy was good. Everything about it was very kind of curious like, "Oh, the acting choices are, oh, I don't know if that's good or bad. The plot (laughs) is kind of all over the place. Venom itself is kind of weird. They make these weird choices where it's cracking jokes like in Tom Hardy's head. Oh, It's giving him relationship advice. It's very odd. But because they just kind of, I don't know, kind of didn't care if it was silly or over the top, it almost worked.
0: Huh. See, that's interesting, because that's not... I don't picture Venom cracking-wise.
1: Yeah, yeah. The whole thing had a very 90s Spawn vibe to it, like weird superhero from the 90s type thing. And that's not necessarily a good thing, but it was entertaining. Like I was entertained, and I kind of hope they do... I mean, it seems like it's doing well, But I kind of hope they do make a sequel to this.
0: You want to see where they take this. Yeah. How much weirder and crazier it could be.
1: Mm -hmm. And if you guys go and see Venom in the theater, make sure you stay all the way through the credits. Not just the first little special thing. Stay till the end because there's a little, I think it's like five minute snippet of Into the Spider-Verse. And you get this whole little thing of miles morales as spider-man and it's really cool like it got me so excited for that film i wanted to watch that like immediately so definitely stay till then
0: i want to see miles morales i want to see Gwen stacy i want to see spider pig i just want to see the whole thing Mm -hmm. just that movie looks cool
1: yeah it's just i think it's like a five maybe ten minute it went by so fast i'm not even sure but yeah it's just this little scene between him and peter parker that's really cool
0: that is cool See, this movie makes me want to go and see Spawn because Mm -hmm. I've never seen Spawn. I know what it's about. I remember when it came out, it was a very big deal because it was very dark. And at the time, they weren't making, with the exception of Batman, they weren't making dark, gritty comic book movies. Mm -hmm. And Spawn is just a dark, gritty comic because for those of you who don't know spawn isn't he a cop he's like a, a police officer mm-hmm. and then he dies and he, he goes to hell he's not a, a good guy and that doesn't typically happen in these types of stories and he he comes back as spawn and he's trying to save his family and i remember that's why i never read it because i think my parents looked at it and went oh no no not this <laughs> you can read other things
1: yeah that's totally spot and I remember when I saw it as a kid, I was like, oh my, that's so cool. And then re-watching it later, I was like, that is not good. Oh no! <laughs> so me comparing it to Spawn is not a great thing. But yeah, I, I thought it was kind of fun. Let me just say that.
0: Hey, it's, it's fun the way that uh, Sharknado and Deep Blue Sea and other shark-themed movies are Right,
1: fun. right. Okay, and then next I saw Perfect Blue the anime, which is one of my favorite Satoshi Kon movies. They were having it as a fathom event at a theater near me in West Hollywood. So I was like, I must see this on the big screen because I've seen it on DVD and it's kind of a dark psychological horror movie about this singer in a girl band who becomes an actress and There's a fan of hers that does not like this move. And so he starts stalking her. And, you know, because of these kind of sexual roles she's playing now and these darker things she's having to do in this, it's kind of a cop drama series that she's been cast in, she starts to lose touch with reality. So there are murders that are happening in the series and there's murders happening in real life as well and you think it's happening because of the stalker and maybe it is but it keeps flashing between reality and unreality to the point where you're not even sure what's real anymore and by the end you're just I remember being exhausted (laughs) (laughs) at the end of it It, even though I knew what was going to happen in the theater I was still just so tense and you know those things that mess with your mind it's just kind of it's exhausting and By the end, it's just like a big exhale, and it was really good. It
0: sounds really good. Yeah.
1: If you haven't seen this movie, definitely pick it up on physical media, or if it's on streaming, check it out, because it's very good.
0: I've heard it's good. And I like Satoshi Kon, because I really liked Millennium Actress. I thought that movie was really good.
1: Yeah, Tokyo Godfathers is good. The series Paranoia Agent's really good. He's just... I'm very sad he died years ago. And I'm just really sad that for him and his family, of course, but also just, you know, I am really interested what he would have come out with later in his life. So, yeah. Anyway, so that's it for movies.
0: All right. And then I watched a couple of things. So first off, finally saw, I mean, we meaning to watch this movie for years, Attack the Block, which stars a young John Boyega. It's actually the film that J.J. Abrams saw and thought, John Boyega, he needs to be in my Star Wars movies out in 2011. This movie's great. It is a terrific movie. It's scarier than I thought it was going to be. I was actually quite shocked by some of the things that happened in the movie. Basic premise is that in London, they're these teen kids. They're essentially hooligans. And they're robbing people. And they're all between the ages of 10 and 15. And they come across this alien. And the alien's trying to kill them. And they kill it. And because they're roughhousing teen boys, they bring the body to their apartment complex. They live in this high-rise apartment. They bring the body to the complex. And then everything starts going crazy because all these other aliens crash land, attack the complex. And so the aliens are essentially attacking the block. The block being their apartment. And they decide, you know what? We're tough. We're going to protect all of our neighbors. And so they just go out with bats and machetes and kitchen knives and they're just, they're essentially brave enough and crazy enough and young enough where they're just gonna waste everything that gets in their way and it's its amazing because you're watching it going, they're adults that would not have the courage that you guys have and they're just very much, no one's coming in, nobody's hurting our neighbors, nobody's hurting our families, we're gonna protect everybody and it's great. It's an absolutely great movie. And then right after that movie, I saw La La Land, which I did not care for. I am I am not a La La Land fan. I know there are many people that love La La Land. I love musicals. I think musicals are great. I've had the great opportunity to see many musicals on Broadway. I did not think this movie was particularly great. Did not really care for the singing. There's my hot take on La La Land, which is not really a hot take because a lot of people agree and a lot of people disagree. So there's my take on those. And then I also had the chance to finally watch Dragon Prince. And Dragon Prince is very good. Have you seen it yet?
1: I haven't, but I'm interested in seeing this.
0: It's good. It's by... So one of the co-creators, Aaron Ehaz, was one of the writers on Korra. And it totally has that Avatar Korra vibe. You know, it starts off with book one and you have... This really interesting setup and this magical world, and a lot of diverse characters. And you have the character that, you know, this isn't really giving it away, but she's, you know, she's a bad guy, but then she kind of becomes a good guy. So it's kind of got that whole Zuko feeling to it of, yeah, he's a bad guy, but is he really a bad guy? No, he's a good guy kind of thing going on there. And it's very action packed, the animation's very interesting. And I'm very much looking forward to season two. I liked how they ended everything, so I'm very curious as to what they will do next. And so that brings us to our main event. So we had the great pleasure of interviewing Jack Kazbrzak, who is one of the co-hosts of the Sketch Zone podcast, and he's also an animation director for Spirit Wild and Free. So, Jeff, what did you think about the interview?
1: I thought it was really cool. He is very interesting and has so much experience in so many different you know, fields in animation I love talking to him about his books and his illustrations and all that stuff definitely but I thought it was also cool just how he really grabbed the opportunities that came up for him that maybe he doesn't have the know how for this certain job order but he's just going to grab it and he's going to figure it out I really love that and lastly, I thought he got so in depth on pitching that like I've never heard really that he just really lays it out, especially for an independent animation production company. He really gets into what goes into pitching. And I learned a lot.
0: I did too. And I especially like you said, liked what he said about pitching because both you and I, have pitched stuff, and want to pitch more things. And I know that a lot of the listeners are also interested in pitching their own material. Mm -hmm. And like you said, a lot of things he talked about, I'd never heard anybody else say. Even other people that have pitched and sold shows haven't given some of the advice that he gave, and he gives really good advice. So you guys are really going to like this. It's a two-part episode, so part one will be this week, and then we'll have part two in two weeks. So without further ado, we're happy to present... Episode 81, Interview with Jack Kaspersek, Part 1. So Jack, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So we always like to start with origin stories. So where are you from?
2: I am from Racine, Wisconsin, which most people don't know where Racine is unless you've seen a league of their own. It's kind of between Milwaukee and Chicago right on the lake.
0: So then growing up, I'd read a couple of things about you and I've heard other interviews with you that you often made films with your friends and your cousins and you guys were going around doing different things. So what were the kinds of films? that you were making
2: as a kid i didn't realize i publicized that so... <laughs> let's see most of them were really shameless knockoffs of parodies of star wars or of james bond yeah we had a whole series of star wars knockoffs where we had darth tater where instead of choking people he would throw a tater tot down their throat nice this is you know typical stuff that like 12 year old boys come up with and then let's see yeah we had double od which you know in a 12 year old's mind was very clever but it just stood for double o dumb and he was kind of of an inept agent. So me and my cousins were making knockoff films, basically. <laughs>
0: that sounds great. So were there particular characters that you would like to play?
2: I mean, as much as I would like to be the lead, you know, a lot of times I had to run the camera. So, wow. you know, it's kind of all over the place. I was the oldest cousin, so I definitely got to take my pick. I don't remember any specific other than I was Darth Tater.
0: Nice. <laughs> it's like, I will destroy yeah. you all. They're going, no.
2: Yeah.
1: What were you shooting
2: it on? It was like a old VHS camcorders. And obviously, we didn't have editing equipment, so it was all like shot chronologically and cut in camera. It was <laughs> real bad, you know? That's, that sounds fantastic. If <laughs> <'Cause laughs> you made a mistake, you had to like rewind the tape and kind of play and then stop and hope you had it just right. When wow. you got older,
0: did you ever rewatch any of those movies? You know,
2: they seem to have gone missing. And it's funny you bring this up because I reached out to my parents probably six, eight months ago and I was like, if you come across the those I would love to get my hands on those because I could probably work some magic on them now and but you know do you really want to make them better because they were probably were pretty good the way they were and that was kind of part of the charm or yeah. they're just flat out terrible I no
0: know. I wouldn't want to make them better it'd just be more fun to look at that and go wow I... because there's things that you think you remember and then yeah. you watch it and you go I don't remember doing that I don't remember saying that wow and then sometimes you think yeah that's not so bad and other times you go no they're no, absolutely not
2: <laughs> yeah I think it'd be fun to watch I'm sure it'd be painfully embarrassing but i do remember in the double Dumb one we were in the middle of recording a shot and my cousin who was playing the james bond character just went on this long explanation of like wouldn't it be cool if we did that and i'm like dude we're recording but, I, <laughs> but like i didn't want to like it was such a pain to like stop and rewind and all this stuff so i like kind of let him go a little while i'm like maybe uh-huh. this will be like a good improv and then i realized he was basically giving me instruction about what the next scene should be so
0: he's giving you scene directions you're yeah. going that's not what i'm asking for here yeah. i want pathos not now do this to this do this yeah
1: well you gotta rescue them just to archive them before the vhs tape dies
2: that's also true mm-hmm. before the, there's no more conversion process yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> everything just bleeds through
2: yeah i'd be surprised if it even play
0: well if you find them
2: that's the oh, real trick yeah
0: so at the time were you also interested in comics or cartoons or was it mainly i want to be the live action guy
2: it's weird i never really viewed and i've said this before before on other interviews, I never really viewed animation or even filmmaking as a potential for a job. It just really wasn't on my radar. I was like one of those things that was like, oh, magicians off in Hollywood do this. Like it wasn't real people. It was wizards. So it was kind of like it never occurred to me that I could do this for a living. Yet here I was paradoxically like making them. And it was kind of like, yeah, I never really put two and two together. And I wasn't really much of a comics person. I had a Tupperware bin that was only about eight inches tall that had like all my favorites. But I really only bought them for the artwork. I'll be honest, even to this day, I probably couldn't tell you what they were about. I bought the ones I liked that looked pretty. So yeah, it was it was mostly like cartoons. And I, I really had was passionate about film. And I liked watching film. I liked analyzing, especially as I got older, I liked analyzing. So it wasn't until I started looking for like potential college options that it kind of came into a possibility.
0: Okay. And I yeah. saw that you went to Illinois Institute of Art. Yes. And it was kind of okay. It was all right. Like, <laughs> I'm just trying to glean some other yeah, talks the... that, that
2: school has had a really, actually, that entire franchise, you know, has had a really troubled past. When I came in, it just recently been bought out. And so it was just recently converted to Art Institute, and it still had a lot of the original professors from its previous incarnation. When I went there, it was pretty good. A lot of the professors, you know, were really passionate. I mean, its biggest problem was it was in Chicago. I mean, it wasn't where the industry was, right? So a lot of the professors were not professionals, or they were maybe at one time, and then now they're kind of been teaching for 15, 20 years. So, you know, as much artistic skill as they might have, they didn't really have a whole lot of industry insight. But, you know, there's a few key players, you know, I had, and I can name drop, you know, I had like uh, Richard Hyde and Jan Gaetan and Dan Hampson, which were all amazing teachers, but kind of you get what you put into it. But I would even say beyond that, like you have to put in everything in order to get anything. Because <laughs> there's, you know, a lot of kids in my class were not that talented. There was no portfolio requirement, which, you know, was kind of a red flag at an art school, but again, you know, I didn't even really realize that this was an option. So to me, it was like, ooh, an art school I can actually get into without even worrying about the process. Very enticing. And I did very well, but that was also because I was obsessed with it. And, you know, and I went out of my way to like talk to all the individual teachers and try to pick their brains individually. And I was working on, I don't know how I did it looking back, but I was working on projects of my own outside of the school projects. So it's like I had that passion and drive, which I think, I hate to say it, but was more of the success of, and the school did foster that. I think that's the important key. Is the school did foster that, and the professors that latched onto also fostered that. So that helped a lot. But the biggest thing that launched me from there was they held this yearly thing called Artimation, which is effectively like a school film festival. So you know, kids would submit their work, and then it'd be reviewed by industry professionals. And that's ultimately what led to my gig in LA. Was one of the industry professionals was a recruiter at Digital Domain, and she saw my work, loved it, and basically said, "Would you come out for an interview?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." So you know. I can't complain about that it all turned out well for me
0: <laughs> no that's fantastic and I applaud the fact that a lot of people do this but a lot of people don't they don't realize that oh it's not enough just to get that piece of paper I actually have to put yeah. in a lot of work and yeah. sharpen my skills have you found that you just had that internal drive to work hard or was it more of you just cultivated that over time
2: it was a little bit of both definitely looking back on my past and even now I kind of have that obsessive drive particularly I mean not with everything but particularly with this field like it's just something that I always always think about it sometimes i can't shut it off it's like i'm always thinking about stories i'm always thinking about how to be more efficient with the technology or the software i'm always thinking about new mediums to kind of play with so the kind of drive was definitely always there but i will say this for school and school settings is that it does create a nice regimen it does create like a nice schedule and a nice system for people who maybe don't know how to focus because i think a lot of artists struggle with that and i do too to some extent being an artist especially of one who's got many interests it's really easy to get de were all of them unfocused. And then that's something that I think schooling really helps narrow is, you know, they give you specific guidelines and timeline and a project and you kind of just got to narrow it into that. So it started with the drive and the passion and the regimen just sort of pushed it further.
0: That's good to know. So let's talk about now digital domain. Yes. I thought you've worked on a ton <laughs> of movies. I yes. think you've worked on more VFX than any of our other guests that we've ever had on the show, which is really impressive. I mean, you were on My Super ex Girlfriend, The Hitcher, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Mummy, Transformers, Dark of the Moon, all of this
1: stuff. Trump Legacy. Yeah, <laughs> I love a that lot movie.
0: of really interesting titles. So what was that experience like?
2: It was wonderful. To be honest, the only reason I have left visual effects is because it's a painful, struggling industry in terms of its business model. The company was wonderful. The projects were amazing. Obviously, I can't complain about that. But at a certain point, it kind of came to me needing some more stability and, and to push more onto the client creative side. But back to your question, I was, again, as with a lot of things in my career I was sort of thrown into it even though I went to school for animation and illustration and I kind of focused on animation and I was such a hardcore 2d guy when they started introducing me to 3d animation I was like hell no I'm never gonna do this this is awful and then you know like about six months into it I was like had this god moment where you're moving the rig around and you're like I'm a god you know and it was like so exciting um and I kind of latched on to it and I kind of became this weird hybrid guy that could kind of do both and so much in that same way I was kind of thrown into visual effects even though I was really into animation and you know obviously going to school for animation visual effects it's weird I don't know if I didn't do my research if I just I don't know but this seems to have happened a lot in my career because it was like yeah if I'm going to be an animator I'm going to go to like Pixar right but it didn't cross my mind obviously there's all these visual effects studios and like live action stuff and part of that is because I think I came from a 2d background and I was really into the cartoony like illustrated that type of world that the super realistic stuff it just didn't even cross my mind that oh this is an option so I had a couple of things on my reel that I think was like cloth simulation and hair which at the time in 2004 or 5 it was kind of like you know not a lot of studios even the pros not a lot of studios were really doing that I mean obviously you know Monsters Inc kind of nailed it but (laughs) Digital Domain saw that and they're like oh my god somebody who can do this stuff and he's a student he's probably cheap right I mean I'm assuming this is what they were thinking and literally and I've told this before too literally my first day of work they put me in front of a Linux machine which I also had never used a Linux machine and you know it's not like click launch whatever it's like you got to go to the terminal and be a hacker and type a whole bunch of lines of code and they're like so here's how you launch Maya and then so there was strike two I was like Maya I've never even touched Maya I was trained on 3d studio and then you know Maya comes up and they were pretty much like okay go maybe in like by the end of the week we can have see like a hair model I was, was like all right I'm gonna get fired immediately so here I panic and I'm talking to you know all the cube mates and stuff luckily they put me next to the guy who had done hair and fur on the previous show so he sort of helped but pretty much like his the response was like good luck dude it really sucks (laughs) because it was also you know new in the studio they didn't have any proprietary tools or software to help you work it out it was all just plug and play and then if you want something custom you got to figure it out it was like a hardcore TD role and I was coming in as like an entry level never done this before not just never done this before never used Maya never on Linux like there was a (laughs) lot of stuff working against me and somehow you know I went online this was before even YouTube was and I went online and digital two you know i ordered some dvds about how to do Maya hair i'm plugging away for like a couple weeks and we have the dailies which is you know everybody in the same room i decide i don't know what i was thinking i decided to sit right next to the visual effects supervisor in the front row i was clearly like teacher's pet nerd the first review and i was like <laughs> well, let's sit in the front maybe he'll like me and, you know you're looking through the shots and they repeat dozens of, times, dozens of times and it's just like all this incredible work i mean you said look at the history of digital domain like just groundbreaking stuff award right here it is just seeing it all and you know these crazy fire effects and all this stuff and then they get to the hair and they're like okay let's take a look at the hair and eric nash who is the supervisor he's got this real slow dry voice he kind of goes oh this should be fun we've never seen hair before and it's kind of <laughs> his voice where you're like i don't know if he's joking i don't know if he's actually excited so here it comes up like the head turntable of uma thurman i was supposed to make uma thurman's hair and it's spinning around spinning around and the room is dead silent which it usually is but you know dead silent and it was spinning and spinning and obviously my head is just going crazy going crazy and I'm like, is this guy ever going to say anything? Like, at least tell me you hate it or something. And finally he just goes, huh. And I was like, oh man, this is making it even worse. Like, is that a good, huh? Is that a bad, huh? Like, what's happening right now? Am I going to get fired? And he just goes, well, that'll, I think that'll work. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And then, of course, I exploded with emotion and I was like, OK, yeah, but I'm going to do this and I want to do that in the next round, you know, and then it was like they were totally on board. I somehow pulled it off. And that was kind of the beginning of it all. That didn't really answer your question. That was sort of the origin no, of I, it.
0: I love that, though, because that reminded me of my computer teacher in high school, because I asked her once, I said, how do you know this? She goes, oh, well, I just read a bunch of books the night before I teach y'all. That's all this is. Just stay one step ahead. That's kind of. Yeah. yeah and she told she goes, never say I don't know how to do something. If someone says, can you do this? Your answer is yes. You go home, you research it, it, you come back and you go, hey, I can do this thing for you. Yeah. So you did the same thing. You didn't just crumble up and cry. or like, I'll
1: figure it out.
2: I mean, there might have been some crumbling up and crying in there, <laughs> but not on studio time. You know?
1: and you got back up and wiped the tears away.
2: Yeah, and I got back up, and then it was a situation where I did three projects where I was pretty much the hair and fur guy, which was kind of weird because, again, like that's not what I intended to do with my education. That's not what I intended to do with my career. It was very technical, you know, and not just technical. Like it was such a niche part of the process that it's like here I am sitting around all these animators and stuff, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna want to be doing and here I am grooming hair you know it was was a very bizarre kind of thing so I kind of had to pivot my way into animation and I worked on this show called The Hitcher which was a remake of the 80s horror film where we're doing this rabbit that gets hit by a car basically it was a really complicated task for something that really should have just been shot practically or you know like totally just like a cheat they just over engineered this entire thing like it was one shot of watching a rabbit and then it gets hit and the funny part is, is they gave us this reference footage in the location with an actual pet caged rabbit that sort of looked wild and it kind of hopped along and they're like okay good that's good for lighting and i'm like why are we not using this and then you just swap it with a blood explosion like what's happening right now and they went through like five or six animators and the lighters were dropping like flies and the producers were arguing and here i was plugging away at the fur and then the lighter was gone and i was like well i've been lighting because you kind of have to light your own fur the way this is so i was like i'll do the lighting okay here i'm doing the lighting and then before you know it, there's seven animators through and they're like okay here's what we're gonna do we're gonna get a squad of animators and split the shot up into four sections in each guile yeah for a rabbit finally i was just like you need an animator like i'll jump in and so like i don't think they actually end up using my animation but that was my sidestep from hair into animation
0: yeah i remember you talking with charlie and with carlos on your interview like how did i become the hair guy that's not my path i need to find a way to do what i want yeah
2: to. that's like a tricky thing of you know everybody's just like i just need to get a foot in the door and that's true because obviously that was my foot in the the door and I was at that studio and they wanted to continue hiring me and it's much easier to meet people and pivot into a new role once you're there but at the same time it's like it's really easy to get pigeonholed into this specific role and it's like well we know he does that and it worked out pretty well let's just have him keep doing that and some studios are better than others but a lot of places it doesn't matter how much you say like I want to do this it's like but you don't have any experience doing that which is ironic because I didn't have any experience doing hair and I you know <laughs> <laughs> and I got hired right out of school doing that.
0: So then once you're able to pivot, you start doing animation previs for all these different movies. So you work on a lot of really great shows. What was it that made you realize, you know, I'm enjoying animation, but I would like to do less visual effects, heavy films and stuff and more television or more children's media. Was that the goal or how did that happen?
2: It was kind of a big, complicated mess of things. I had been a digital domain. By the time I left, it was like a month shy of 10 years, which is pretty unheard of in the visual effects industry. Most people stay at a studio for like six months, you know, and maybe you have a long project or you roll onto two and you're there for two or three years. But, you know, 10 years is, unless you're the VFX producer or something who's pretty much started the studio, it just doesn't really happen. So a little bit was, I felt like I was just getting stagnant. A little bit was like, okay, I don't feel challenged here anymore. I don't feel there's really much room for growth, particularly the way the hierarchy was set up in the animation department. It just didn't seem like that I was really going to go anywhere. But aside from that, there really was kind of this call I found myself waiting for renders and illustrating and drawing on notepad. I think that was a thing too. And I was doing little projects at home and, you know, I kept coming up with random reasons to challenge myself creatively on my own time. Like I was like, okay, I want to make a children's book or I want to illustrate a couple of pages of whatever, or I was taking on freelance illustration work. And that sort of over time kind of became like this flag that something's a little missing, even though this is amazing work and you know, it's all like a list stuff and it's awesome to be like, Oh, you worked on Transformers there still was something kind of missing so I started to look around at other places that were more client side or more content side because I realized it wasn't even so much the animation that was the issue it was I wanted to be kind of at the front end where the concepts happen and where the creation happens because visual effects is post it's so far past where all the decisions have been made that I've kind of felt like a cog in a big wheel that was just you make little minor creative choices here or there about the way a hand moves or something but it didn't feel very creative so it it was really kind of a Turn to something that I could be more creative in.
0: So how were you able to do it?
2: It was just a long search, really. I started looking, it was like a year and a half before I actually left. And part of that was because I liked digital domain. They treated me really well. I was really good friends with a lot of the people there. And we started to build this really nice team that I was used to working with. And it was very comfortable and they paid me pretty well. And I was never furloughed or never off. I had no reason to leave other than what I had just explained. So it was kind of like, if I'm going to do this, it should be for something that fits it's right. You know, I'm not going to leave just for the sake of leaving. Because, you know, even though not being challenged was one of the components and change of pace does offer a new challenge, but you can get a change of pace anywhere. I could go work at McDonald's and it would be a change of pace, but that wasn't really what I was looking for. So it was kind of just slow, just sit, do my work and then kind of start looking around. I mean, I interviewed quite a few other visual effects places. I was in chats with Disney for a while and then I knew good contact at DreamWorks Television, which is funny because I got him into the industry about like Five years prior, he was in architecture and he got in and he became the lighting supervisor at Nickelodeon. And then, when the whole Nickelodeon DreamWorks departure happened, mm-hmm. he sort of was in the right place, right time, and he became one of the CG supervisors of the new DreamWorks television. So, they had been up and running for two or three years at that point. And he said, Yeah, are you interested in coming over and supervising a show? And of course, that sounds perfect. As you know, some interview processes are very long and very slow, particularly with these really big studios. So, from the point of contact, and point of, yes, let's come in for an interview from two point of hire, it was like nine months. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah, there, there was a really good long period where I was confident something was happening, but had no guarantees. So it was kind of like, I don't know, maybe I should just keep looking. Wow.
1: Before yeah. you went over <clears throat> to DreamWorks, were you doing anything to scratch that creative itch that you weren't getting at Digital Domain? Were you doing personal projects? Or...
2: Yeah, as most animators and people in this industry are. I was working on you know, a couple of like... Like scripts for shorts or pilots and then I did a children's book that was purely like I want to accomplish this goal so I set this really strict boundary for myself I wanted to do something that could only be drawn in pen and ink and sharpie and on copy or paper because that way I can do it anywhere I can do it at my desk while I'm waiting for a render I can do it in dailies <laughs> while my head is spinning a thousand times and you know what I pushed out this book and I think it was like three or four weeks it was you know just like bang 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 and it's just it was a challenge for myself and also just a way to ensure that I actually complete. Complete <laughs> it. Was this the Captain and Crow of the So that was kind of the construct for that, that I wanted to limit how it was done. And then I also had the Daily Mobster blog, which was pretty popular for a while. It was just a way to challenge myself. I was like, I want to be better at writing. I want to be better at illustrating, particularly characters. So I just kind of came up with a framework. I was like, okay, let's pick a theme. I love mobsters. Let's just do mobsters. I'll create a character and then write something about them. And other than that, it was free form. I mean, some of them were like poetry, some were like news clippings, some were short stories. And it was really weird. That just came up with this thing. I just was drawing a little guy and then posting a story. And then all of a sudden it had this traction where people were commenting and reaching out to me. And I got like eight or nine freelance gigs off of that. I did a couple of album covers for some swing bands in the UK. I did a wow. couple of wine bottles. There were some debacles too, or some guy reached out to me and said, I want to make a board game. And he already had it mocked up like with my art, just like full on taken. I mean, he didn't have it produced, but he had like photoshopped images of what this board game. He's like, yeah, can I use this stuff for this? And I was like, are you asking to license? It or are you just saying I'm gonna <laughs> do this? And he was like, Oh, I, I mean, I can't afford to pay for it. And I was like, uh, uh, No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Sorry. especially not the amount. I mean, he basically was taking my property, making it into a game, and then mm-hmm. like, so yeah, there was quite a few passion projects in there.
1: I saw a lot of your artwork online and the mugshots and stuff. It's very black and white. Yes, There's some stuff that kind of has a Edward Gorey vibe. And stuff. Yeah, I assume that was a conscious decision. I know you said you were using sharpies and copy your paper but beyond that was there a reason for that aesthetic not
2: really the black and white I mean it did evolve into a reason but it started off just kind of because like why not it it was kind of a limitation like I I have access to pens and I kind of quickly fell in love with the way that it looked and the way that it worked and I kind of had this nice system that worked for me and it kind of grew bigger than I had imagined so I kind of latched onto it through that process but then you know as process became art and became like more thoughtful and I was actually examining what I was doing it kind of became a storytelling tool and the visual style definitely I was far more conscious of it and Daily Mobster particularly kind of took on this life or that obviously because it's a noir as well. I mean, and the style fits it very well. The black and white tends to often inform the story when I use it. Mm -hmm. I actually did a different children's book that hasn't been printed or published. I have like one proof copy because that came after Captain and Crows and I was like, oh, I love this black and white. I want to do it again, but just kind of explore it as an art style. And that actually became part of the storytelling tool. I was like, okay, blacks and whites and the contrast. And I actually made that part of the story with the white negative space was basically it was this little family that lived on an island that was all done in black with black grass and a little house or whatever. And then all around them was like negative white. And visually, it just kind of looks like everybody's drawing like a thing on a white page. But for this, it was an island in a white sea. And it sort of became the story point, which has been really fun because I've used that technique to kind of explore the visual storytelling more than once. And I'm working on a future project, much larger scale. That's basically that concept and premise book exploded.
1: It sets it apart from a lot of the children's books that I'm seeing now, because those are like exploding in color yeah. and whatever. And then yours is very stark. And I think it's very effective too, because when I was looking at some of the pages, you know, it'd go from white and then you turn the page full black, page you know with white lettering yeah there. and so it was really cool the contrast
2: thank you yeah in the book that is not published which is the island in the plow that's part of the story as well as you know there, it's a whiteout snow and everything gets covered in white but then it's like it goes into winter and everything's night so all the pages go black which is sort of like the downturn in the story mm-hmm. and it really becomes a, a really strong storytelling tool i mean you kind of have to think about it in the same way you would film or color it's lights and darks mm-hmm. but you know because you're dealing with such a limited palette that's such a strong driving factor of the way it looks you almost use that as i don't want to say a crutch because it's not a crutch but you use that as your main tool right much like noir did it's very much about like lights and darks and the contrast which is funny you brought that up about the children's book because that book is actually like struggled and part of it is my own you know (laughs) Self-published, like you got to put in the effort. You got to be like an endless hustler. But it has since evolved into something that my business and partner and I are producing as a larger brand. going to be like an educational brand of learning apps and games and books and things like that. And that's almost always the very first comment because we've done focus groups with parents and with the kids and all of a Pretty much across, we have a marketing agent who's on board. And that's pretty much the first thing they all say is they're like black and white for kids, huh? <laughs> But the funny part is what we found out is none of the kids notice it at right. all. Mm-hmm. We've even, I mean, my favorite quote is I've asked one of the kids and I talked about this on sketch Zone last week is, you know, what do you think of the color? And she's like, oh, I love it. And I was like, even though it's black and white and she goes, well, those are colors, aren't they? <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> it's like, right. You are yes. right. You are It's like
0: the kids get it.
2: And it's even good. then, even That's after good. hearing that, a lot of the parents are still very hesitant. They're like, well, you know, I just don't know. Like kids really like color. And I was like, but based on what grounds, you know, like mm-hmm. this is almost like a weird societal construct and there actually is quite a lot of science the way the eyes evolve that Mm. black and white is the first thing infants understand granted i'm dealing with an older audience that's not infants and you begin to understand color much better but like the interest of black and white never like it doesn't just disappear and get overwritten with color that's not how that works you know it's Mm -hmm. like the same reason we're still kind of fascinated by it black and white photography works so well the reason we read black on white pages and not green on indigo pages you know sometimes it just works better Uh, and that's been a Really hard challenge to get people to understand, but like you said, our hope is in the long run it will actually be our benefit that it looks totally different than anything that's out there.
1: Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, not all the books were full color. Yeah, I had like Grimm's Fairy Tales or whatever, and mm-hmm. it'd be kind of scratchy line work, you know, and blacks and stuff. And yeah, just, I just loved it. I thought yeah. it was really cool. So when I saw your stuff, I was like, hmm, Yeah, I, I mean if he's. That's what he's going. For.
2: Pretty much anything that was printed prior to like 1970 in mass production was black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it just, you couldn't afford it. The technology wasn't there. So it's like, you're going to tell me like all those generations of kids were like, those aren't good drawings. I don't like that art. You know, it's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, so I want to explore that more because we can talk about DreamWorks in a little bit, but since you brought up the children's book, I saw that you are working on Orange Wolf Content. That's the name of your yes. company, correct? Yes. With your business partner. So yes. I was wondering if you could just share how you came about getting a business partner and realizing, oh, this needs to not just be personal products yeah. on the side, but an actual company.
2: It really did happen organically. It was, like I said, everybody and their brother in this industry has a side project. It's just kind of what natural part of being creatives. And I met my business partner Slavic when I first started at Digital Domain and he was working on Flags of Our Fathers, the Clint Eastwood thing. So we were actually even on totally different projects. But you know, over the years we met through some friends and just started hanging out and became friends. I mean, we were both simultaneously working on things, but the whole Orange Wolf thing sort of started because he was working on a pilot script for a feature and he would constantly call me up or text me like hey can you look at this like let me just get your feedback and it came to the point where I was doing so much of the work and so much consulting that he was like I kind of feel bad maybe I should just hire you as a freelancer he's like can I just pay you I don't even remember what he paid me I was probably like don't pay me and he's like I have to pay you so I kind of came on and there was like legitimate sessions where it was like we'd meet for three hours or whatever and that script has you know long since been shelved and will probably show its face in 20 years when we decide to rediscover it but since that that was sort of the kind of beginning, like, oh, we work pretty well together. But I was working on my own thing and he was working on his own thing. And we were just kind of doing our thing and constantly bouncing off each other. And he actually approached me. He was like, this would be way easier if we work together. We work well together, which is the first and most important thing because finding someone you work with is tough and it makes the process easier. But beyond that, if we want this to go anywhere besides just our living rooms, it's so much easier to go out into the business world, the investing world, the pitching world, whatever it may be with a partner it's much less scary you have somebody else to split the work with you also just kind of look a little more impressive when there's two of you this is my writing partner like the industry is sort of set up that way there's very few projects out there that are done by one person unless you're Bill Plimpton or something but it's expected that you want to be a good team player and work with others well so if you come in and there's already that establishment it just works that much better but I was a little bit hesitant at first I'll be totally like flatly honest there was kind of a period where I was like I feel like he needs me more than I need him and it was it just purely a matter of perspective at the time I was like I feel like my content is better than his and I feel like he's always coming for me for consulting but really what it was was I hadn't really opened myself to criticism and to collaboration it was really just me helping him and I was like yeah I am good at this we should yeah but wait a minute you want in on my properties I don't know but it was definitely a selfish protective thing and I think he asked me two or three times he's like should we just join and like make a company and do a thing and I was just like "Eh." and I think some of it it was fear it was like that's like a commitment now you got somebody push it which is also a great part of it but you know when you're first starting or you're not quite sure yet that's also terrifying there's somebody who's going to be breathing down your neck is that done yet so i kind of turned him down for i think a couple of times it was like a good year from when he first asked me until it was you know what he's right we work really well together i need someone with his drive and he also has great ideas we work really well together i think i was most nervous that he just wouldn't get animation because my style is more quirky a little weird kind of animated and he he's very much in the live action sci-fi world. And I just didn't see how those were gonna mesh long-term. But if I just opened my eyes and saw the past of all the work we had already accomplished, the writing was there, the writing was on the wall. So we formally started the company just over two years ago. And we basically pooled all of our properties into one protected LLC. And we've kind of cherry picked which ones were most viable and just began developing. And I mean, everything from rough storyboards to shorts, to script writing, all the way to like the full on business plan pitch process
0: that's really good yeah and i'm impressed that you saw in yourself oh this isn't just a i'm better this is i need to open up too because i imagine especially for artists it's weird we can do that with our art but not often with other people
2: yeah and i can only say that in hindsight i think even at the time i wasn't aware of that it was still kind of a decision that was somewhat i mean most of the decisions we all make are self-interested of course you wouldn't get involved in something where you're gonna get screwed it looked at it as he has a really strong drive and he He's accomplished a lot of projects on himself and he just kind of has that fearless attitude about let's go do this and that was something at the time i didn't really have so even though now it's become so much more than that we work really well together he totally gets the animated quirky stuff i totally can do the sci-fi all that stuff that i was worried about is like not even there but it started really as me being like i need someone just with that drive that i don't have right now looking back really what it was it was me being afraid to open up the doors and share with somebody else and really move forward as a team and
0: then when one- you start pitching because i know that we have a lot of people on the show some of them have pitched some of them haven't we've met a lot of people that want to pitch yeah how do you persevere (laughs) in this because i think the misconception is they go to dinner once with an executive they buy their idea that's it i know that's not how it goes so
2: (laughs) that happens but it's certainly not common Mm -hmm. so
0: how do you guys keep it so that hey you've pitched this five times but you know it's a good idea we're going to keep going at it
2: well right now because i'm at dreamworks and there's all these conflicting legal things works sort of on stall with pitching things until we can make sure that everything's legally worked out. But when we were pitching and when we will be pitching again, well, we are pitching the pirate app because that's non-television, it's not a conflict. So yeah, how you manage it is it's shots in the dark. There is no instruction manual to this. It doesn't matter what anyone tells you. It's not a science, it's not even well-documented. It's sort of like this weird hush-hush thing. I hate to say it, but a lot of it is good old fashioned nepotism. I mean, that's a lot of the way that section the industry works. Why is that? I think it's purely because companies are afraid to take risks. That's the other thing. And I can talk about that at length is making that shift from artist into businessman or woman. A lot of this is you make this mental shift in realizing that at the end of the day, it's about money. We're commercial artists. We're not fine artists that are just doing this for the sake of it or to have it on a wall and say you either like it or you don't. We're making a product. And in order for that to sell, you have to sell yourself to some degree. And it's a lot of that comes back into play with Whoever you're pitching to. It's like they have a company and they have interests that they're protecting. And especially now with the flood of content, they're very hesitant about taking risks on terrible products. I look back now and I look at all the projects I've worked on it and the amount of people that are involved, the amount of moving pieces, the amount of things that do go wrong. Sometimes I just am like, man, it's amazing that anything ever gets done. Cause some of these productions are so poorly run and just chaotic and crazy, and people stressing out and getting divorced and getting laid off and like you name it. It's nutty it's tough to get these things done so you kind of look at that and you're like yeah i can see why you know a company is like i don't know i'm not just gonna give a million dollars to whoever just because they have an idea because there's a million whoever's with a whatever idea i mean like i said everybody and their brother has an idea and that's the thing you quickly learn to manage so back to your original point it's one thing to say you know what? i'm gonna go and pitch i have what i believe is a great idea but you have to realize that everybody thinks they have a great idea and these executives have heard it pretty much all so kind of what sets you apart is making that connection because generally what is going to happen is is once you sell there are cases where you sell it out right but most pitches aren't developed well enough that that's going to be viable you're going to have something rough that they're going to want to continue they're going to pay you to go into a development phase which means it needs to be developed further or they're going to buy it and bring you on as a certain role so what does that mean that means you're going to be involved in this property which means not only do you become an quote-unquote employee of this company or this entity that's bought your property but you're going to be working with them and you have stake in this property. That's a lot of risk to ask somebody to take on. Think about it from like a smaller scale. If you run a small business and you need to hire a plumber and hiring a plumber is one thing because if he messes up a job, you can fire him. Mm -hmm. But say this guy comes in and says, I got this brand new idea for pipes and this is how we're going to do it. And if everyone we sell, I get 50%. That's a major risk for you to take that guy on, right? It could be amazing for you. If this is the new technology that changes the game, you're golden. But is it going to be that technology that changes the game? I mean, this is this company. guy going to be a crazy?
0: I just wanted this pipe fixed. That's yeah. all I need. I <laughs> yeah. don't need your newfangled idea. Yeah,
2: it is a major risk for these companies to take on. So managing it is managing your expectations and managing your ability to realize that you're not just selling a property, you are selling yourself. Because they have to like you. They have to be like, I could see working with this person for X amount of years. I can see this guy potentially managing people. Unless you're selling to a Disney or a DreamWorks or a well-established person production studio they're also saying i trust this person to build a studio and produce the product because i mean if you sell the hulu they're not going to go produce this for you they have money that they're going to invest in you and you have to get it made do you know how to manage an indian studio or find six producers like most people who have a great idea don't know how to do that so there's like a lot of larger scale things that i think people are completely unaware of and dialing back a little bit let's take all that out say you go the traditional route you go to somebody like a dream or a Disney that is well versed at producing this, they're gonna handle all that for you. Best case scenario, they buy your property and they bring you on as a head writer or a showrunner. Even then you have to understand that the studio is going to invest X amount of money in starting up this development, hiring who knows how many artists that you know it's all a lot of liability and you know, legal fees and this and that. And you are effectively gonna be in charge of that project. Kind of think about it from that. Like this isn't just my baby, my cool idea. You're becoming a liability.
0: I don't mm. think that even more than half people <laughs> and it's, consider any of And
2: that. it's not something I thought about. I think everybody, I mean, Netflix was a huge shock to me. Everybody thinks, oh, if I can just get into Netflix, they're the mothership. It'll be amazing. But it's slowly changing now that they're developing their own internal production studio. But they're also making exclusive deals with specific content creators and writers. Prior to that, and even outside of that, they're still signing their more, I can't call them traditional, but the deals they have been making, it's like they don't have a production house. They're going to sign you a check with obviously a lot of, Oversight and their own executives involved. But they're also basically asking you to become an executive producer and get this job done. If you don't know how to run a studio, you need to find somebody who can do it and you need to begin propagating that pyramid of production. Seeing how many VFX studios and animation studios close their doors, like that's a bit tall order to fill.
0: At what point did you discover this? Was this while you were at digital domain or was this while you were freelancing? Because it sounds um, like these are things that you and Slavic kind of figured out before. It is. No, no, no. Started. This is
2: stuff that we figured out along the way you know we teamed up bright-eyed bushy-tailed thinking kind of like I think everyone does that we're gonna write or we're gonna make a short it's gonna be great someone's gonna see it they're gonna buy it we're gonna be the directors or the producers and you know make a million dollars okay well as we started to break that down and we started talking to people and reaching out and having small meetings with small producers that led us to bigger producers or people who know what they're doing and all this stuff it's like you just start learning all the little pieces of this crazy web that doesn't really have any rules like it's there are no rules the other thing is people forget is you're not getting hired at Starbucks there's not a regimented hiring procedure to this it's all personal contract like I make a contract with you like I'll give you five dollars if you give me the flowers if you don't give me the flowers then I can sue you that's what this is you're making a personal contract with these companies that pretty much changes everything that means it can be whatever they want to say these contracts you know are different between every producer and every creator it's kind of whatever is negotiated. This this is why you got to get lawyers involved this is why you got to get agents if you can find them involved it's a crazy messy game and there's a lot of moving pieces Wow. <laughs> that, and that's, that's not to intense. discourage I anyone appreciate. it's purely just to say like know what you're up against and start doing your research now and maybe you'll be ready to pitch in five six years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's you know that's not true there's still there's still the cases where you know you're in the right place at the right time particularly if you already work at a studio that does like dreamworks has an amazing in-house pitch program i think this Disney has something somewhat similar. If you work at a studio that has that, by all means, utilize that open door. Is it going to be as profitable as you being an independent person who knows this crazy web and can navigate that? No, of course not. But that's a lot less risk for you as well. I mean, you'll probably just get brought on as a head writer or maybe a showrunner and they'll pay you like the standard salary, but you're not going to get ownership of it. You're not going to get toy residuals. You're going to get none of that. But you've saved yourself from this entire chaotic, unwritten black box of the world.
0: Have you found, I don't know, joys the right word but just a good groove or just a good path navigating that <laughs> web or is it just a constant slog trying to um, make inroads doing different things
2: i think it started as a constant slog it was kind of like man this is way more than we ever bargained for this is crazy how are we gonna do this but there's definitely two or three like key moments along the way when either dealing with someone specific or i won't call them major upsets because pretty much everything that has happened to us we've been able to turn into something very productive it's all learning but there were two or three key moments where I think from an outsider be like man you guys should be furious you guys should think about tossing in the towel or you guys should be so upset and the both of us were kind of like but this is just the kind of the way it is you know and you kind of it sounds awful to just like give in and be like this is what it is but it is this big machine is in place and sometimes you just gotta ride the wave I'll give you a specific example so it's not so cloudy we got really frustrated with one of our agents that we had and not just our agent but some other contacts at the speed at which they would respond and I'm not talking about like cold emails where we just like shot it out and we're like why aren't they responding the next day these are like people that we had talked on the phone with had an established relationship basically we're under contract with and weeks and weeks would go by with nothing and we'd follow up be like hey any movement on that contact or this process or this pro nothing nothing oh you know we were sick or I had to be out of town or nothing yet I'll try next week and early on that was incredibly frustrating it's like me and my business partner are moving at a million miles a second like we're so motivated we want this to all happen we're go Go, go, you set a deadline. We need, say, 18 storyboards done by tomorrow. Okay, good. We got this script is two weeks done. We got that. We were hitting all of our deadlines as you do as an employee, right? Again, it was this kind of mind shift from employee into kind of nebulous personal contract world. And the frustration was we weren't getting that in return. People were just kind of blase and, yeah, we'll get to it. And that was so incredibly frustrating for so long. And then there were just kind of these moments along the way that were like, okay, let's contact someone and see what's going on. And so I contacted one of my my writing friends who's done dozens of pitches and i'm like is this normal like this doesn't seem right we're in contract with her she should be getting back he's like yeah man that's just like the way it is <laughs> he's like yeah you might not hear anything for four months and then all of a sudden they contact you up and then the people who are in it they all know this they all just are so like yeah that's kind of the way it is and you just kind of roll with it and you're like really you roll with poor email etiquette and non-responsiveness and they're like yeah which is sad like maybe there should be a way to change this but i don't know i can't think of any way to this. Yes. <laughs> well
1: i think the alternative is frustration and tearing your hair out if yeah. you just kind of like well this is the way it is you know yeah it's probably less That is. nights that
2: is the alternative and we definitely went through a phase of that where it was endless frustration and like are we doing something wrong are we even cut out for this and it just like i said there were two or three points where we we're just well if this is the way that it is and we can accept that how do we move this or you know do that so as long as we're staying productive and feeling like i mean because we can't control what other people do i can't force people to respond to emails and to some extent you do become a little like nagging fly on the wall you send lots of follow-up emails hey just checking in because a lot of it also isn't that they aren't interested it's just like either they don't have time or wrong place wrong time like we would love your story about flying bedrooms or whatever it is but you know there's just not an open market for flying bedrooms right now and then all of a sudden in like three months you remind them hey any thought about the flying bedroom script oh, oh my god bed knobs and broomsticks was just re-released on dvd and it was such a hit we're gonna launch a show about flying bedrooms suddenly every. The dynamic changes because a lot of it is these numbers and this data that's coming in about viewership it's just like a what's hot type of thing yeah and
0: to yeah. your point too you said you guys are working on multiple projects so it sounds like too just don't focus on well, just one thing yeah focus on one thing that might drive you nuts well multiple things. and this is
2: something we talk about on sketch all the time yeah. it's a really hard truth that a lot of folks don't like to hear but you're just not much of a creator if you only have one thing and you're only creating one thing and you can only create one thing if you're terrified that somebody's going to steal that or if it falls through then you just just have nothing then you're not a creator you made one thing and now you have nothing else so that put in perspective practicality you know you get in a pitch room and they say you know what flying bedroom sounds great but it's just not what we're into right now do you have anything else damn straight you better say yes <laughs> yes I do. you better have three or four other things lined up it doesn't matter what stage of development they're in because sometimes they'll buy it on a one sentence yeah yeah come back next week and soft pitch that they'll be like do you have anything you know with like dragons yes i've got this thing about dragons that I've been thinking about, and you may only have like a couple of sketches in the log line. But sometimes that's all you need. If they're really into one pitch, but they don't want it right now, then they have the sense of we like this guy, he's got good ideas. Then, furthermore, we can maybe continue working with him. He has a long term relationship, he can do more stuff. So let's see what else do you have. And then you throw that out there, and they're like, Well, we really like that, even though we don't want it. We're probably gonna like this as well. You know, so, even like a one-liner soft pitch can be the beginning of you don't have to foster it into a fully fledged finished feature film. They you shouldn't be pitching that you should be talking to distributors at that point
0: i've heard that from other creators as well where they go in and they have that idea that they love but they also have two or three Mm -hmm. other ideas and then it's this other idea that they barely have any material and they say well can you bring us more yes i can and they just don't sleep for a week and they come back with an entire pitch and that's the thing that
2: unfortunately we haven't had that luck we (laughs) haven't sold anything yet so i can't say that that's happened but i have heard that that happens a lot and i've even heard like crazy things where people will start with their less interesting idea because maybe there's this myth that they're not going to go for the first one why would they seem easy and just be like yeah that's great come back so they start with something they're less into and then when they're like well do you have anything else and then they like whip out their baby that they you know they've been
0: (laughs) but you're a lot farther than the majority though (laughs) just the fact that you guys are putting together ideas you have a company you're going out to talk to different people yeah it's
2: it is a process it is a full-time job on top of another full (laughs) time (laughs) job. yeah but i feel like that's
0: just how it is like i don't know any creators that all they do is sit at home and create I mean that's still a whole lot of work but I don't know that many people that can't afford or have the luxury to not have some type of day job or some other kind of career
2: that kind of goes without saying I Mm -hmm. think particularly in the art industry it's weird maybe it's because of the way that it is rather than I don't know if it's a symptom or a cause but yeah it's like you get in with this big dream and then it sort of quickly transitions into your dream job into more of like a job and I love my job and I try to remember every day that I basically work like nine 99% of the kids in schools dream, you know, and I was there once too. So it's like, even when it's slogging and it's a little hard and the drama, like you're going to get that with any job. I always try to be grateful, but I guess the point I was trying to make was it's really weird to watch that transition. It's like these Mm -hmm. kids come in, they're like all bright eyed and everything's amazing. And it's within like two years, some of them are even quicker, man. We hired this one PA that within three months, he's like, well, when am I going to be a coordinator? And like the entitlement (laughs) and like the belief of I've been here, I've put in my time. You haven't put in your time. I put in, you know...
0: You put in 90 days. (laughs) You're not even off of probation. What are you talking Um, about?
2: (laughs) It's weird to watch the luster of it so quickly fade away. But I guess the upside of that is I think as creatives, it's kind of natural. It's like you're always thinking of the next and you're always thinking of how to better this year. So even when you have the job that you want, you're like, okay, but then I could go work on the comic that I always wanted to do. It's just kind of the natural ADD artist mentality. That's good to hear though that's normal. (laughs) That it's not just like... I mean, it's not normal in the normal population. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, i think it is i mean it seems more common than not mm-hmm.
0: and that concludes part one of our interview special thanks to jack for being a great guest and make sure to tune in next time for part two and if you've enjoyed today's episode please leave a five-star review in itunes all of your reviews help more people to find out about the show and you can also support the show by visiting www.theanimatedjourney.com and clicking on the PayPal donation button on the right-hand side. All of your donations help us to pay for the technical costs associated with running the podcast. And in the world of animation, make sure to check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash theanimatedjourney. On Tumblr, the site is theanimatedjourney.tumblr.com and on Instagram and Twitter, The handle is at NMJourney. And Jeff, where can people find you?
1: People can find me on Tumblr and Twitter at JeffBot, J-E-F-B-O-T, and at Shootzee, S-H-O-O-T-Z-E-E, on Instagram.
0: Excellent. And you can see what I've been up to lately by visiting my website, www.sketchysoul.com. On Tumblr, the site is sketchysoul.tumblr.com. And on Instagram, the handle is at sketchysoul. And speaking of seeing what we've been up to, Jeff, you had a lot of really cool Inktober posts this October. Oh, thank
1: you. So have you.
0: Thank you very much. For those of you who don't know, Inktober is upon us. So get out those inking pens and paper and draw and do not be intimidated by the amazing, crazy quality art that's out there because there's so much. Just draw whatever you want. Good advice. Yeah. So until next time, be encouraged and have a great day, everybody.